Greetings to you all in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus, the one who was the perfect example of forgiveness. Talk about perfection. We're not all perfect. He was. He is our example. I guess I'm the first one who gets to comment on Lyndon's message. I really appreciated it. In fact, um, it shoehorns very well with the message. almost feel maybe his message would have been better after mine rather than before. But um, I really appreciated it. Well, we want to greet everyone, including some visitors here and some new visitors here and I want to thank you for coming and welcome you and join with us as we look into God's Word, as we, as we look to the Lord for grace, for direction and strength for our lives. If we look to man this morning, I know that the Lord uses man and we need to acknowledge that the Lord does use men. But it's the Lord that gives us the strength. We want to look beyond man this morning and look to the Lord. So um, that's my desire this morning. I know you just for uh, standing, but can we just stand for a word of prayer again if you are able to? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you for your great forgiveness, which is extended to us. Extended to the very depths and the heights of our sins and our offenses towards you and towards other people, Lord. But Lord, we also recognize, Lord, that we have a responsibility and we have a part to play in that forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us as orphans, but you have said that you will be with us. That you will not give us anything that we cannot do that you will not give us more than we can bear, but that you will give us and be with us, even in dark and trying times. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness to us this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would direct this service, the rest of this service here, and that you would lead us into your paths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. I actually don't think I am an expert in this topic this morning, but my title is When Life is Not Fair. I could also title it this way When Life Doesn't Make Sense. I could also title it this way, when pain and confusion is the main feature of my life. Now, I know as I'm speaking this morning, each of us are at different places. There are some hearts here this morning that are probably rejoicing and don't know what I'm talking about right now. And there's other hearts who maybe have been through this in their time past and have come through. But I think this topic hits us and we're in it at least some of our life, every one of us. So I think it's relevant, even whether you're at right, where you're at right this morning, it's relevant to all of us when life is not fair. And for a scripture passage... And turn to Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Matthew 11, verses 1 to 6. And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that was John the Baptist, had heard in the prison the works of Christ... 
he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, and the disciples said unto Jesus, Art thou he that should come, or should, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again these things which ye do see, hear, and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. People like you and me like to make sense of the world, its happenings, its unfolding events, and we like to understand them. We like to make sense of them. We like to see them how they fit. And we like to see them in light of our beliefs and our assumptions. The world, we assume, has structure and order to it. And we assume that if we stay within that structure and order, life will make sense. We assume that. For example, we may believe that if we are diligent and work hard and have self-control, we will profit and be successful. We assume that. We may think if we eat healthy foods, we exercise and maintain a healthy weight, we will have a healthy long life. We may believe if we train our children well and are a good example to them, they will follow our values. We believe that sowing and reaping is a life principle. And so if we sow well, life will get better as a result. About 27 years ago on Thanksgiving Day, Benita and I were at a church service at a Weaverland Mennonite church, and a preacher from Canada had a message that morning. Now, they don't have titles, but I remember the title of that message. As he said it over and over, he said, Life is not fair. Life is not fair. Now, is there anyone who would disagree with that here this morning? We all understand that to be true, except maybe for the schoolboy or the schoolgirl who says, that's not fair. And then we can tell them life is not always fair. But when we face disappointments, dashed expectations, unfulfilled dreams, sickness, death, grief, or a major loss of any kind, we can crumble under discouragement and despair. An overwhelming event or a complete change of circumstances can hit us hard. When how we think life should function no longer connects with the reality that we are experiencing. And when that comes severe enough, you're acting susceptible to a nervous breakdown. I've, I, I've heard, I don't know if I get the definition correctly, but I've heard the definition of the nervous breakdown. It's when what your basic assumption in life no longer connects with reality gets severe enough, you can no longer function. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe you can help me afterwards. So... Or, if life no longer connects with reality, you can just shake yourself and throw out the baby with the bathwater and let the whole thing just go and just go on with life in some other function. And just give up with your assumptions and just throw it all out and try to start over. Now, what kind of character was John the Baptist? Would you see him as a good addition to a ministry team in a seeker-friendly church? Yay or nay? 
Or could you see him sitting in this circle discussing possible interpretations of Scripture? Who was he? He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was doing what God had told Isaiah to do when he says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. He was dressed astutely, astutely in camel's hair and a leather belt. His diet was rough and simple, locusts and wild honey. He was a no-nonsense man who said what needed to be said and was not afraid to say it. I wonder if anybody here be like him. He had the Spirit of God burning inside of him, so much so that Jesus said of John the Baptist, he said he was a burning and shining light. John the Baptist, at the testimony of Jesus, was a burning and a shining light. He preached the truth and he wavered for no one. When some important people came to him, that's called the Pharisees, they were important people, he just told them, you know, you're actually birthed from a litter of snakes. That's not very flattering. That boldness finally got him into prison when he told Herod that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. And you don't say that to a king and get away with it, and he didn't. Now, John knew he was a forerunner of the Messiah. He knew he was to prepare the way for Christ. Somebody whose sandals, whose feet, he was not unworthy to, shoes he was not unworthy to, uh, worthy to untie. And when Jesus came on the scene, John rejoiced. John baptized him. How many people had the privilege of baptizing the Messiah? Only one. John saw the dove coming from heaven and landing on, and he heard the voice from heaven, and he gave witness to it. This is the Messiah, and I must decrease, and he must increase. Now John was in prison, probably for some months, and it seemed to be he was having some serious doubts. John the Baptist is having some serious doubts. Can you imagine that? Why was he having such serious doubts? After such experiences that he had, why would he come to the place where he would say, is this really the Messiah? John, the, um, John the Baptist had some expectations. He, he preached in Matthew there. He said, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. He had boldness and he had some expectations. But he was still a human being. Spirit-filled as he was, he was still human. Faithful as he had been in the past, he was still a mortal man. He was one like you and I. The assumption that we make is that John the Baptist thought that Jesus is going to come onto the scene and things are going to move. That's the assumption that we make. Jesus would quite rapidly move over the powers of darkness, bring them to judgment, and as he, John, had been prophesying, establish a righteous reign. But instead, Jesus was moving freely among the people, healing people, even Gentiles, 
And he seemed to be in no hurry to do the very thing that John the Baptist expected him to do. John had said, the axe is laid to the root of the tree, but it's not appearing like it's happening. It doesn't appear like judgment is coming. John had some clear expectations, but they were not taking place as he thought they would. Things did not make sense in his mind. He had preached the truth, and he thought he understood it. But now he's wondering if it's all wrong. If he was wrong about the Messiah in his life, just think with me a little bit. If he come to the place where he finally come to the place in his mind, I was wrong about the Messiah. His whole life is over as far as he knows it. That was what he lived for. That was his ministry. If he come to the place where he gives up on the Messiah, it's over for him. I think he would be susceptible to a true nervous breakdown. Now, is that a unique experience? What about Elijah? That prophet that John the Baptist came in that name. You know, John the Baptist was the same austere man. He was the same type of bold proclamation. And you know how he prayed and there was no rain. And then how he hid in the brook. And then he went to this widow. And then finally when the time came, they had this showdown on Mount Carmel. There was this boldness of this prophet that you could not imagine anyone standing up against. Was it 450 prophets of Baal? He was just one. I mean... There had to be trust in God like you would not believe. But then he goes back. After everything was over, he goes back. He runs back under the juniper tree after Jezebel is chasing him. And he's discouraged. Why is he discouraged? Was he afraid to die? Well, no, really. He said, Lord, take my life. It's not like he's afraid of death. Why is he discouraged? He had some really serious dashed expectations. I think he thought if we have this showdown and we prove that God is God, then Israel's going to come back to God. That's what he was living for. He was living for that, giving his whole life for to bring Israel back to God. And he found out that, yes, the prophets of Baal were killed, but the true supporter of that idolatrous religion was still in charge, and it was after him. And if he gets killed, he said, there's nobody else. There's no one else to witness. There's no one else to preach. All hope is gone, and I can't stay alive and see that. And so the Lord asked him, what doest thou here, Elijah? This is the first king. said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken the covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I have been very jealous for the Lord. I have been true to my conscience. I have denied myself comfort and riches. I became unpopular. I rejected the pleasures of sin. I faced death threats. And I had some expectations of what would happen, and they're not happening. In fact, if anything, it's worse. This is not working. Everywhere I look, there is disorder and sin. I want out of this failed program, Lord. Just let me die. Now, fast forward to about 3,000 years. Here we are in 2016. There is a broad range of expectation in this room. And there is a broad range of disappointments in this room, I'm sure. 
dashed expectations, unrealized dreams, seemingly failed promises or hopes. Imagine with me a young girl growing up in a Christian environment. She sees her parents' good marriage. The social environment that she is in encourages girls to expect and prepare for marriage. So as a young girl, she plays with dolls. She expects nothing else than marriage when she grows up. A a marriage like the one she observed in her own home. In time, she is courted by a respectable young man and joins his hand in marriage. But it's not long into marriage that she realizes that she did not really know the man she was marrying. He is selfish, demanding, and impure. Her dreams of many years of a happy married life is eventually dashed, as she knows now it's going to be a grueling and a difficult journey. And the future, instead of being bright and promising, looks dark and long. Her anticipation has been dashed. You know, we could tell examples upon examples of disappointment and pain and grief. The person who wished for marriage and never had it. The parents with wayward children. The children whose parents failed them in one way or another. Accident, sickness, injury, death, financial loss, rejection or betrayal by friends, false accusation, abuse of various kinds, church strife, loneliness, fellow Christians leaving the faith or compromising it, personal failures, marriage failures, ministry failures. Did I miss your failure? Ever since the fall of man, pain and disappointment has been the common experience of mankind. And if I know you as fellow human beings, it's been part of your experience. It's it's a definite part of the curse that is going to be removed. Because in the new world, there's going to be no pain, there's going to be no tears, there's going to be no crying. That will be removed, but not here. Since about 1900, with the advent of modern medicine, such as anesthesia, morphine, and the like, people have been able for the first time, have been able to live the majority of their lives pain-free. That was not true for most of human history. But with medicine and drugs, pain can be numbed or eliminated during surgery or sickness or injury. So, most of you here, for the most of the time, live physically pain-free lives. There are exceptions, of course. That is not true for emotional pain. That pain that goes deeper than your body. The sorrow or loss or distress that is in your soul. It's in your heart. And that pain probably is increasing in our society, not decreasing as society continues to disintegrate. What is the common response to this kind of pain? When we experience it, we, when we have pain, we seek to divert it. We seek to alleviate pain. That's a normal thing. We seek to numb it or divert it. One way we, that people, I say we, I trust it's not we, but one way people numb it is with alcohol and drugs. They have pain of various kinds, and they can numb it by getting a chemical high of some kind. Psychotic prescription drugs can be one way to numb the pain and distress people experience. Another response is diversion. Since I have this pain here, 
I'm going to try to get pleasure somewhere else to divert it. And the way we do that is that diverse as there are people. Common ways to divert pain is eating, usually in excess. Shopping, usually in excess. Working, and yes, usually in excess. Just giving yourself in something else with abandon to try to drown out the pain of your heart. There is one story, one book that I read in my youth. I think the title is Light from Heaven. The main character is Herbie. Am I correct? You, you read that book? Herbie is the main character of that story, not Light from Heaven. For one, for one moment. That's right. That didn't sound right. By Christmas Carol Carl Kaufman. And in there, of course, he was engaged to a young woman, and she died of turkey or something. She, had a, she died before they were married. And he experienced that pain and grief. It was right in the time that the Nazis were coming up in power. And he fully and completely poured himself into that regime. He gave his, he numbed his disappointment and pain by abandoning himself in that regime. That's one way that people do when they have pain is diverted. Others can drown themselves by putting on a happy face and being the center of attention in a party. Become the mask for the tragedy and pain that lies just below the surface. Many comedians actually have very sad and tragic personal lives. That is actually fairly common. Others, when they experience pain, will just withdraw into a shell and isolate themselves. You can talk to them, but you can't get close to them. You can't get close to their heart. There's walls. They have walled themselves up. That's enough of pain, not going to have any more. They become cynical and distrustful. Other responses, of course, are bitterness, anger, hate, and occasionally violence. Are these good responses to the pain that we experience when we have disappointments or dashed expectations? Well, what's wrong with them? Why do we tend to do the wrong things when we experience them? Well, the truth is emotional pain, disappointment, it really hurts. It really does hurt. We do seek relief. So why do we seek for relief in the wrong places? Someone who seeks to numb his pain with alcohol, will his pain go away? Yes, overeating, will your pain go away? Working, partying. See, all these things are coping mechanisms to employ to mitigate or lessen the pain for the moment. But the pain doesn't go away. In fact, it comes back usually with more pains added. <clears throat> Is there a better way than just coping? Well, John the, pa- John the Baptist was facing the crisis of his life there in prison. When you, when you are in the shoes of John the Baptist where you saw that and experienced what he did and have him questioning whether this was the Messiah, John the Baptist is having a crisis. Better believe it. Now, he doesn't understand what's going on. He had this austere ministry of repentance and the coming and the soon to come judgment. And here comes Jesus and he eats and drinks with sinners. While John's ministry was in the wilderness, Jesus went to the population centers. John had announced the coming of the king and had promised a time of judgment, yet Jesus was having a ministry of mercy. And so John asked, are you the Messiah or do we look for another kind of Messiah? Someone who will purge the nation of its sin. Well, what did Jesus do? You know, it's an example. Jesus is an example like we talked this morning. What did Jesus do when John was facing the crisis of his life? 
Well, first of all, he was gentle. He didn't scold John. He didn't tell John to shape up. Don't you know better? I mean, look at all you look at all your experience you've had. No, he didn't do that. He was gentle. He knows our frame, and he knows we are made of dust. And you know what? We need to be gentle with each other. But neither did he defend himself and tell John's disciples, No, John, tell John, I really, really am. I really am the Messiah. Tell him, I really, really am, and defend himself. He didn't do that either. Jesus took John back to the word of God. He told John, he told the disciples, you go back to John and tell them what you're seeing. Tell them how the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor had the gospel preached to them. John the Baptist knew the Old Testament really, really well. He knew Isaiah 35, where this is right out of. He knew Isaiah 61, which is part of this, what I just quoted, came out of. And he knew that they spoke of the common Messiah. So, though some things didn't make sense in John's mind, here was evidence from the word of God that this is correct. And then he said these words, Jesus did. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. You know, John the Baptist had to go back to the word of God. And he had to believe it. There was, of course, his evidence, but he had to put his faith in God's word. Just like you and I have to put faith in God's word today. And he had to. Exercise faith. Said, this is what God's word says the Messiah is going to be like. I thought it's going to be this way, but here's God's word, and it says it's this way. And not even the prophets of God have their faith given to them on a silver platter. They had to exercise real faith in a world of disappointment and sorrow. Believe on the word and act as if it is true. You know, in our pain and disappointment, we can realize that by faith, faith in God, faith, real faith, that moves us to respond in action will bring us healing God's way, much better than coping will ever do. Now, I need to emphasize this. Real faith is faith that will move you into obedience. Believing God's word, real faith, if you don't believe God's word and act on it, it's not real faith. Real faith means you take God's word, you believe it, and then you act as if it is true. Because if it's God's word, it is true. I I don't think I'm actually an expert in this area. But I have four points that I'd like to go over as we are looking at some other, rather than the coping mechanism that I had mentioned, what are God's answers for disappointments? And number one, it's pretty well self-evident. And maybe you could... Simply use it in one word called acceptance. But number one is recognize that pain and disappointment is a normal part of the world we live in now. You know, the one verse that comes to my mind right now, I didn't write it down, that thought, there has no temptation overtaking you but such is common to man. The disappointments that overtake us are common to man. According to the laws of motion, there will be accidents. There will be sickness. There will be real evil people 
in this world with real evil intent. And then there are careless people, selfish people, unconcerned, misinformed, unaware people who cause a lot of pain. But then we need to ask ourselves, what has God promised us? You know, what song did Annie Flint Johnson, a woman who knew an extraordinary amount of, extraordinary amount of suffering and pain of almost every kind, write? You know, she was orphaned at a young age. She was taken in by adoptive parents. At some point, they also died. She became crippled at a young life, at a young age, probably in her early 20s. And she had to give up her career. And she had much, much physical pain. Lived in a wheelchair. And um, I think quite a bit of poverty. And she wrote a song. Now the point is, what has God promised us? God has not promised, sky's always blue. Flowers strewn pathways all our life through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God has not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He has not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God has not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide. Never a mountain rocky and steep, never a river turbid and deep. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. That's what God has promised. There's a brother here who, when I ask him how he's doing, often says, better than I deserve. Some of you may know who that brother is. Now, that is true. That's true for all of us. It was God in his great mercy who, when we were helpless, redeemed us back to him. We were in the devil's grip, and there was nobody going to get us out of him, his grip, except the Lord Jesus. He is the only one. And we got it, not because we deserved it, because he loved us. There are many great and precious promises in the Bible, but they are not health and wealth promises. God never promised our friends won't disappoint us. He never promised that sin in its multiplicity of forms won't hurt us. We need to firmly understand that and not take on what you call a victim's mentality or something like that. We may not take on a victim's mentality. Poor me, I have been wrong. Someone hurt me who should have known better. I am angry and I'm resentful. I am powerless to change because of what others have done to me. I don't think I can forgive those who are the reason for the pain I have now. That's a victim mentality that we must, by God's grace, overcome. So recognize that pain and disappointment is a normal part of the world we live in now. Number two, realize that though your hopes are dashed, that does not mean the Lord has forsaken you. Though you are disappointed, though you are experiencing pain, that does not mean the Lord has forsaken you. The best example I know of from the scripture is Joseph. Hated by his brothers, 
He is sold as a slave in a foreign land. What do you think he was thinking? How did he cope? But he did well, and it was true to his conscience, and he resisted that evil, and it got him landed into prison. Disappointment. Do you think he had it? Dashed expectations. Forfeited dreams. He really did have dreams, you know. He had divine dreams. I was the favorite son of my father. I received those supernatural dreams. But now here I am, 26 years old. I've been a slave for years. I've been falsely accused. And I'm in this prison. And it looks there is no future. But there is a precious verse. A very, very precious verse. In Genesis 39:21, it actually says it several different times, but I'm going to read this one. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph when there was no other light. And showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. It's the rest of the verse. One could very well conclude that based on Joseph's experiences that the Lord had forsaken him long ago. Do you feel that way ever? In distress and trials, that the Lord seems far away. You know, Job felt that way too. And his friends were convinced that it was true. But it wasn't. In fact, all of heaven and all of hell was observing that event. I don't know if you ever find yourself in trouble, in distress that is really, really dark. I don't know where you find yourself. But you're not seeing the whole picture. There is more to the picture than that darkness and pain that you're experiencing right now. There is a whole lot more that you're not seeing. Not if we take God's word at face value and believe it. Ruth, she left the land of Israel with her two sons, her husband and her two sons, and she came back with no husband and no sons. Talk about hopes dashed. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Marina. What? Mara, something like that. Because I am bitter. I went away full. I came back empty. I am, she was shattered. Had God forsaken her? You almost think he could. Was it right for them? Was it right for her husband to take her them away and for her son to marry these Moabite women? Not according to the law. So there was some failure there. But behind the scenes, God had not forsaken Naomi. No, she never got her husband or her sons back. She never did. She had to bear the loss of that. There was loss in her life. But the Lord had not forsaken her. And her daughter-in-law became the mother or in the lineage of King David and eventually of Christ. She was an honored person. So realize that though your hopes are dashed, that does not mean the Lord has forsaken you. Number three, God uses difficult things in our life for his purposes. You know, in a storybook, when you read a a story, usually not a true story, usually a novel of some kind maybe, there are characters and there's a plot. One thing about the characters in these books is usually there are good characters and there are bad characters. And you know who the good characters are and you know who the bad ones are. Well, at least by the end of the book you do. Sometimes you don't earlier on. But the distinction is pretty clear. 
in real life, it's not that clear. It's not as easy to see who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. The fact is, we're not all heroes. Who is the good guys in here, anyhow? Who are the heroes? We're far from heroes. But if I would always have an easy path, if no one would ever irritate me or disappoint me or be contrary to me, if circumstances would not stop me dead in my track, I would never have to deal with those elements of my life that are there that I might not even know about, but they come out when we face difficulties. I would not be aware of the hatred that my own heart is capable of until I am violated in some way and am faced with needing to forgive them. Then I discover my own heart. I will never know how weak my faith is until I am exposed to hypocrisy and inconsistency of so-called God's people. And my own faith is challenged. My own faith is challenged, especially there. Will I just give up because of what other people have done? Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, talking about Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. You know, Christ didn't have to learn obedience in the same way, in the sense that we did, that he was disobedient and he had to learn it. He didn't learn it that way. But he was tested like you and I are tested. And he learned by that suffering, he was tested in his obedience. That was God's purpose. He was opposed. He was falsely accused. And he is our example. Out of Joseph's imprisonment came the preservation of a nation. Talking about imprisonment as where we're gonna we're gonna crouch. I have a list here of imprisonments. We're gonna, all these imprisonments were people who were falsely put in prison. For what they believed, okay? It was nothing they deserved, but they were put into prison because of their life. Same with Joseph. Out of imprisonment came the preservation of a nation. Out of John's imprisonment emerged the book of Revelation. Out of Paul's imprisonment flowed the highest revelation of the scriptures, the prison epistles. Out of John Bunyan's imprisonment came Pilgrim's Progress. None of us have been imprisoned yet that I know of for our faith. But we all have faced wrongfully, been pained wrongfully, not prison, but other ways. God has a plan, and he can do something good with that. I did Google something, too. Um, I didn't really, I didn't look much at what I found. I didn't really like what I found. But I did Google one thing, is that God doesn't waste our pain. <laughs> so I want to see what, what is there. And the fact is, I think that is true. I think that is true. Do you know what a rock tumbler is? Anybody know what a rock tumbler is? Ever hear of a rock? Okay. 
I I remember uh, many years ago that our na- uh, where I worked, a neighboring business had some kind of a metal tumbler. Do you tumble metal to get the rust off? Just that being done? Okay. I figured that's what they did. Where they put all these rusty bolts and pieces and stuff in and they tumbled in this thing and they get all the rust off and what comes out is the real stuff. Or you can have a rock tumbler. You know what they do with the rock tumblers? I don't know. I never saw one. I just, just researched it a little bit. They put grit in there. Is that right? Do you know about rock tumblers? They put grit with the rocks so it speeds up the process. So not only are you in a, with other bunch of rocks being tumbled around, there's grit in there that'll really rub you wrong. It speeds up the process. Any of you feel grit written sometimes? But the end result are beautiful, smooth, colorful, polished stones, rounded, and they're used for decoration. I think that's what God has in mind. I think he does. God uses difficult things in our life for his purpose. Number four. Realize that some things will never be straightened out in this life. We live on earth. There is another life. Some things will never be straightened out in this life. We need to realize that if we're going to deal with the pain in our lives at times. A Christian that I heard this story some time ago, and I don't know all the details, but there was a Christian was in a Nazi concentration camp in the middle of horrible suffering and cruelty, much cruelty from the guards. One of his fellow prisoners was an atheist. This atheist had an enormous amount of hatred for the Nazis that created this regime of cruelty and death and basically ruined his life. He had an enormous amount of hatred. The Christian told the atheist, atheist, according to your worldview, those guards that are treating you cruelly with impunity, those Nazis who birthed this regime and are perpetrating it, they can do whatever they want and experience absolutely no consequences for their actions after death. said, I believe in a God who will bring complete and righteous retribution and judgment on every soul. And he told him, no wonder you're so filled with rage because they're doing this and they're getting away with it. Now I know it was said this morning already that it's, that should not be our heart of forgiveness, that we should just wait, they'll get it. <laughs> That's not our heart, but the fact is that it's true. And we need to realize it. And so we come back around to the beginning. Life is not fair. Not going to be fair. Life is not an equal opportunity employer. You know that. There are not certain unalienable rights that we can demand out of life. Some things will happen that will not be corrected here. Some losses will need to be absorbed by the grace of God. I think that's the realization of Asaph in Psalms 73. And I'm going to read parts of that in, a, in, a, um, in the paraphrase. Psalm 73, many of you are familiar about, with that. He said, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. Why? For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so strong and healthy. They don't have troubles like other people. They are not plagued with problems like everyone else. And then down at verse 13, he asked the question and he's 
feet are almost slipping. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? You know, Joseph could have asked that question. Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. In verse 17, oh, in verse 16, I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and sent them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. And verse 21, then I realized, then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet, I still belong to you. You know, the Lord hadn't forsaken him when he was almost going. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. I think we'll stop there. All of God's people experienced suffering. Abel was killed. Noah was mocked. Moses was chased from his home. Daniel was a captive. The prophets were abused and killed. So, number one, if we consider how life and disappointment and dashed expectation realize that pain and disappointment is a normal part of the world we live in now. Number two is realize that your, though your hopes are dashed, that does not mean the Lord has forsaken you. Number three, God uses difficult things in our life for his purposes. And four, realize that something will never be straightened out in this life. You know, a whole other message could be given on some of the mechanics of how to deal with specific, with the specifics of pain and hang-ups that we have. Some of those mechanics, those specifics rather, are very helpful, but I don't feel that I am have a clear understanding to give those mechanics or those specifics. Nor am I persuaded that all that all of the techniques that are out there are godly. I'm not fully persuaded of that. And I'm not quite sure always which ones are good and which ones are not. Sometimes some of the self-help things that are out there circumvent the real cross and go around it. We have to be aware of that. And to me, it's not easily always easy to see that the difference and clearly see it. But uh, we could have a somebody could possibly have a message on how to deal with it more specifically. Then I could have one other point that I didn't put down. I just thought it at the end is after those four points is now what? Commit yourself to do the will of God. Abandon yourself in the Lord, even though wherever you are in your experience, just I'm going to go on with God. That's going to be my choice in life. I will not sway from that. So I'd like to read one more psalm here in closing. Psalms 23. A psalm of comfort, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I can easily see why that psalm has given multitudes of people comfort in affliction. So, may God bless you. May we be gentle with one another. May we graciously guard each other. Try to avoid causing each other pain and help each other in our pain. May God bless you.